Amen. So, uh, Pastor Matt uh, is in Iowa right now, preaching at Pastor Christian's church. So, you probably catch that online later. If this if this isn't enough for you, then you can catch Pastor Matt later. That was supposed to be funny. It's okay if you laugh at that. That was supposed to be funny. Okay, so we've been in the book of Matthew. Um, we're going to start Matthew chapter 10 today. Um, but little recap. So in Matthew chapter 9, we saw Jesus going from town to town. He's doing miracles and he's proclaiming the good news about the kingdom. He's healing the sick and he's healing diseases and casting out demons and raising the dead and teaching in the synagogues. That's what Jesus has been doing through chapter 9. Um, now Jesus came first for the Jews. So right now he's coming for the Jews. He's here to show them that he is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. Um, he's doing the things that only the Messiah can do. Miracles, healings. He's got this deep knowledge of God. And so the reason why here is that the Jews should know that he's the Messiah. Because they've had this whole history and tradition knowing that the Messiah is coming. They've been God's people, God's chosen people. And now Jesus is here doing the things that only the Messiah can do. They should be recognizing this. This is their opportunity to get their lives right and come back to God. God's chosen them. They've, they've found their way away in the midst of religion. And Jesus is saying, it's time to come back because God's power and authority has arrived. Come back now uh, to, to God. Get your lives right. In uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, it says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's interesting sometimes, and it's good to read the Bible through like this, because um, there's a lot of people who have different ideas about what Jesus came to do and what Jesus came to say. But when you read through the Gospels, you can see he's very clear that he's coming to announce the arrival of the kingdom and that we need to repent and believe in the Gospel. Mark chapter 1 verse 38 through 39 says, But he said to them, Let's go into the next, uh, let's go into the next towns that I may preach there also because for this purpose I have come. And he was preaching in the synagogues throughout all of Galilee and casting out demons. That's what he came here to do. He came to announce the kingdom has come. God's authority has come now. And people need to repent and turn back to God and get their lives right. Because the time is now. Amen. That's what Jesus came for. That's what the Bible says. All those other things that he did. Awesome. Great. But this is why the Bible says that he came for in his own words. Now Matthew chapter 9 verse 36 through 37. But when I saw the multitude, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep, not having a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. There are a lot of lost people out there who need to hear the gospel. Jesus needs to multiply the efforts by empowering the disciples with his authority to do the work of the ministry. Amen? All right. Now let's look at Matthew uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. It says this. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. 
Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Lebaeus, whose surname is Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him those are the disciples so i was going to ask if you guys would name the disciples we're going to do this fun thing where you shout out the disciples names but then as i was studying this out the reality is is if you had asked me two weeks ago to name all the disciples i wouldn't be able to do it i mean some of them are well known but some of them like you look for the bible and you can't find them again they're just quietly doing their diligence for the lord but let's talk about them let's go over who these disciples were so first always first simon peter peter means the rock he was a fisherman from galilee he was outspoken aggressive and considered the leader of the apostles and he eventually became the apostles to the jew the jews so after uh, jesus died and rose again and the holy spirit came peter's mission was to go to the jews to tell them about jesus and get them saved like the apostle paul went to the Gentiles. So Peter did a heck of a lot of work. Um, and, the, you know, honestly, I think Peter's my favorite disciple. And here's why. Because Peter always failed forward. He never hung back. He always, like, put himself out there and, and put the effort in. So I really appreciate that about him. You know, instead of just hiding in the background, like some of them, some of them, when you look through the, bibl- the biblical narrative, you see them there, but only as the group. Like, when they're all afraid on the boat that they're going to drown and Jesus is, calms the storm, they're all there. It's just Peter's the one who wants to walk on water. He's the one who speaks up. And so I really like that about him. And I think that he's an excellent example as the first uh, disciple slash apostle here um, because he's ready to get in there and take some action. Even if he does the wrong thing, at least he's doing something. And I think the Lord uh, favors that. Now, Andrew's number two. Andrew is the brother of Peter. How come we don't know that much about Andrew? Maybe because Peter was his brother. <laughs> I don't know. Peter cast a pretty big shadow. So I'm guessing that maybe Andrew was super awesome. And it's like, yeah, but he's, uh, at least he gets name credit. At least they didn't say, and, uh, Peter and Peter's brother. They actually give him a name. He's also a fisherman and he was one of the early disciples of John the Baptist. Uh, then you have James, son of Zebedee. Um, this is the older brother of John, uh, not James, the brother of Jesus, the writer of the book of James, a different James entirely. He was a fisherman too, and uh, one of the inner circle of Jesus along with Peter and John. So James, Peter, and John, they were always in on it. They're like the inner circle. When Jesus would pull away from everyone, um, those three would be there. So basically, James, Peter, and Joss, John saw everything that happened. They, they saw the transfiguration. They saw everything that happened with Jesus. They were there. Uh, and they were part of the inner tight circle. Um, James, the brother of Jesus, didn't even really come to serving the Lord until Jesus had already died and resurrected. And then he became this driving force and, and wrote the book of James and all that other kind of stuff. But these James, these were, these were here from the beginning. And then we have John, described in the book of John as the one that Jesus loved. Uh, so John, in his own gospel, describes himself as, and the one that Jesus loved. <laughs> Peter ran up to the mountain, and the one that Jesus loved went there too. That's how, I feel like they were probably always a little bit at each other, you know, competing. 
He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote several other books of the New Testament. Um, he was one of Jesus' closest and trusted friends, clearly. He died in exile on the island of Patmos. Then you have five and six here. We have Philip, not the Philip in the book of Acts who did ministry, a completely different Philip. That's why it's good to go through the books of the Bible and it's good to go verse by verse because it's really easy when you look at the Bible, there's a bunch of people have the same names. There's a whole bunch of Jameses and Johns and there's a bunch of Marys running around out there. So when you're reading just one little section at a time and it says Mary, blah, 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 you got to know which Mary they're talking about because it's kind of important when it goes to the narrative. And so this is uh, Philip, not the same Philip from the book of Acts, but a different one. And he brought his friend Bartholomew. Have you heard of Philip and Bartholomew? Yeah. I mean, yeah, you just did. But before this... Like you probably wouldn't have picked them out of a lineup, but they obviously pushed hard for the gospel and they were uh, a faithful disciples for Christ. Philip was stoned and crucified and Bartholomew was beaten, crucified and beheaded. They were both martyred for Christ. So you don't just go around martyring people unless they're trying to serve Christ and push the mission forward. So clearly they were doing something, even though we haven't talked about them much. Then you got Matthew, the tax collector. He was the one who wrote the, the gospel of uh, this, this book we're in right now. Um, and he was a tax collector, tax collector, and tax collectors were hated. Um, and this is the reason why, because a tax collector is serving Rome. Basically, he's like betraying his own people, taking advantage of his own people, betraying them for the cause of Rome, the government oppressors. And so he's... Basically, uh, the government's lackey taking from advantage of his own people, stealing their money and giving it to the government and keeping some for himself. So nobody likes this guy. But the fact that he got chosen as a disciple uh, just kind of shows a great testimony of the redeeming power of Jesus Christ. He should not have been chosen because he was awful. But he got chosen because Jesus Christ redeems people. Now, eight and nine, we got James, the son of Alphaeus, also not Jesus's brother, and Thomas, known as Doubting Thomas. Now, they call him Doubting Thomas because when Jesus was resurrected and he came back in the flesh, he appeared to some of the disciples, but they weren't all there. So Thomas isn't there. So the other disciples come back and say, hey, Thomas, guess what? Jesus is back in the flesh. And Thomas is like, no, I can't believe that. And so instead of just saying no and showing a little bit of doubt, like, oh, wow, I'd really like to see that, you know, to make sure he doubles down and says, I'm not going to believe it unless I can stick my fingers in the holes of his hands and my hand in his side. Oh, Thomas, (laughs) like, I'll just, this is a, just a piece of advice from me. Supported by Thomas is that if you don't know for sure, don't double down on it. Just say, okay, is it okay if we go and see Jesus together? Otherwise, it's just embarrassing because when Jesus did show up, he's like, okay, Thomas, go ahead. I'm sure everybody was just like, (laughs) I mean, they probably weren't, but it's awkward, right? So then you end up for all eternity being called Doubting Thomas. Who else we got? Number 10, we got Simon the Canaanite, a.k.a. Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were Jewish political activists wanting to overthrow the Roman government. So he's probably contentious to hang out with, huh? Like, you probably can't have small talk with Simon the Zealot. He probably always turns it around to politics. Like, can we please just get one, do one dinner, Simon, without talking about it? 
But the fact that Matthew, a Roman tax collector, and Simon, the anti-government activist, could be brothers in Christ and disciples together serving the Lord shows that God's power of unification over the world's politics and labels. Amen? Like, Jesus didn't play identity politics. He didn't have anything to do with that. He unifies people. Number 11, we have Thaddeus, a.k.a. Judas, son of James. I would have changed my name too. I would have said, nah, let's not call me Judas anymore because this isn't really working for me. He's son of James. So James is uh, the the other disciple, his father. He's the son. His name is Judas. He goes by Thaddeus. Or also he goes by Jude, as in St. Jude's Children Research Hospital. He's the patron saint of lost causes. Not Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. Not the author of the book of Jude. That's somebody different. This is Jude, uh, a.k.a. Thaddeus. And then, of course, number 12, who do we got? Judas Iscariot. What did Judas Iscariot do? Betray Jesus. So what's interesting to me is the one disciple we are 100% sure of is Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. Because of our negative bias, we tend to focus on the negative, right? And so the one disciple for all eternity who's going to become basically a synonym for telling somebody they're a backstabber betrayer is Judas. Yeah, I'd change my name too. Judas was the keeper of the money bag. Uh, he was the one who turned Jesus into the Jews to be crucified. But get this. He was one of the original 12. He was given the same authority and power by Jesus. He walked with Jesus for his, his, uh, all his ministry for three years, yet he still betrayed Jesus for money. What's interesting about Judas and, and what I really find powerful about talking about Judas is it's really easy to look at Judas as just the villain. He's the villain in the story. Uh, but he's not just the villain in the story. He was a disciple. He was one of Jesus' chosen. And, and, and to think about my own sin, and I approach Judas with a bit of humility, thinking that in the same situation, under the same circumstances, could my sin get so out of control that I actually turn Jesus in? I'm not above... Uh, thinking that I'm better than Jesus, uh, than uh, better than Judas. Because think about this, and somebody had told me this, I can't remember who, but it really stood out to me. So we look at Judas, we look at the, the one big mistake, the one big sin of turning Jesus in. And it's almost like if you think about it, it feels like uh, all of a sudden one day he just gets up and is like, I'm done with this, and he turns around and he just goes, turns Jesus in. And then that's it. But I think it's more likely that that so we already knew Judas had a problem with money. We see it other places in the gospel where you know that woman comes with a jar of perfume and she's pouring it on Jesus's feet and and Judas is like whoa 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 that's worth a lot of money she shouldn't be doing that because he's the keeper of the money bag probably helping himself to it a little bit too along the way skimming a little off the top so we know he's got a problem with money so I think it's altogether more likely. That Judas didn't just have one big moment of sin. That this sin grew from small sin about his inability to deal with it again and again and again until it got so big that the Jews came and said, hey, here's some money if you turn Jesus in. And he just was too late for him now. Like his, he hadn't dealt with this sin when it was a small sin. And now his sin is out of control. And he gets to the point where he turns Jesus in. 
I mean, what was he thinking, right? Maybe he was thinking Jesus gets out of this stuff all the time. I mean, when you look at the biblical narrative, he got out of trouble several times, walked right through crowds. He disappeared out of towns. He got out. Maybe Judas was thinking, oh, he'll get out of this one, too. I'll just take the money. Jesus will escape. Everything will be fine. But it wasn't fine. And he becomes the villain of all time because he couldn't turn away from sin after sin after sin until it destroyed him and destroyed everything. So I look at that and I say, when I look at that Judas, I say, I'm no better than Judas. And that if I don't take care of sin when it's small, then one day it'll destroy me and people around me as well. Because it's not about your circumstances or position. You must have a heart change. He couldn't have been in a better circumstance or position to be, uh, you know, alive in Jesus Christ in the kingdom. He couldn't have been better positioned. But he didn't have the heart change. And that's what sunk him. But when you look at these disciples, Jesus chose a mixed bag of ordinary people. Some are brash. We know them well. Some are quiet. We just knew them today, maybe for the first time, or at least remember them for the first time. Uh, he chose working men and he chose soft hands. He chose ones that failed out loud and ones that did it privately, privately, but each was chosen for a reason. And that's what's important. Now, we can learn a lot from the disciples. And one thing I think we can learn from watching them is that it's really not how you start. It's how you finish. That's important. Yeah. Now, Jesus sends the 12 out to do the same thing that he had been doing, healing the sick, casting out demons, preaching the good news, because the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So let's, let's look at Matthew chapter 10. We're going to read uh, 5 through 15. Matthew chapter 10, 5 through 15 says, These 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts. Nor bags for your journey, nor two tunics, uh, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worth his food. Now, whatever city and town you enter, inquire who it is, um, inquire who in it is worthy, and stay there till you go out. And when you go out, uh, when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come on it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive your, uh, not receive, uh, and whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart from them, from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the days of judgment than for that city. Wow, that's not good. Now, Jesus gave them three specific instructions here. The first one, Jesus tells them to, to go to the Jews, the lost sheep of Israel, not to the Gentiles. They were to preach that God's power and authority, the kingdom, had come and repentance returning to God. It's interesting that uh, he sent them to the Jews. And instead of just saying, I want you to go tell the Jews, he specifically said, don't go to the Gentiles right now. 
Which is weird to hear, right? Because our whole uh, understanding and legacy as Gentiles is Jesus came to provide salvation for all of us. But we see right here, he's telling his disciples, don't go to the Gentiles yet. Go to the Jews. Why? Because the Jews were God's chosen people from the very beginning. They were entrusted with the truth and given every opportunity to accept the promise of the coming Messiah. They were supposed to be example to all people of God's glory and righteousness. Jesus is giving this, them this uh, um, ability now. Hey, guess what? I'm the Messiah. God's power is here. You need to turn your life around and come back to God. They, can, they have the opportunity here, every opportunity, to be the example of God's gracefulness and mercy and hope. But they choose not to. But they have the chance, and he's going to them first. Matthew chapter 15, verse 24. Jesus is talking to a Gentile woman who wants his attention. He says, but he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, ultimately, the Jews rejected Jesus and salvation became available to everyone else. And which, you know, praise the Lord. You could say praise the Lord after that. And that that whole idea of the Jews rejecting Jesus and and then the invitation being open to all uh, all people is uh, you could write whole sermon series on the ramifications and the life application to that effort right there. But that's not today. But maybe in the future. The second thing, they were to preach the good news, heal the sick, raise the dead, and cast out demons. They basically became an extension of Jesus showing his authority and status as the Messiah. They're preparing the way for him. They're going out into these towns. They're doing these miraculous things that the Messiah can do. People are going to come to him and say, how are you doing this? That's amazing. And they're going to say, Jesus Christ gave us the authority to do this. He's the Messiah. So he's preparing the way from them. He's They are multiplying his efforts out there in all the towns uh, to draw people in to the Savior. And the third thing, they, they were instructed not to bring any supplies with them. They were to trust the Lord for his provision through the generosity of those they ministered to. He said, bless those who receive the message about the kingdom. And if they reject your message, shake the dust from your feet. Basically, basically, that's like saying, wash your hands of them. It's like saying you did everything you could for them. And now it's on them. The consequences are on them now. I'm washing your hands of them. You did all you could. I don't even want their dirt on my feet anymore. I'm leaving their town, shaking the dirt. I don't want anything to do with them anymore. It's a harsh reality, right? Because sometimes we have this vision that we should be uh, falling all over everything to draw that one person. And listen, if they've heard the truth of the gospel, they've seen your example, they know who Jesus is. At what point does it become their responsibility to accept the truth and give their life to the Lord? I mean, isn't that one of the biggest problems in our society right now is the lack of accountability? It's always somebody else's fault. Not here. Luke chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus says, whoever hears, hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So those who have heard the truth and reject it, it will be uh, judged more harshly on them than uh, a wicked town that has never heard it, Sodom and Gomorrah. So basically, Jesus is, again, using an example of something that they know. I mean, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is something they know and are familiar with. This super wicked town that was so awful that God destroyed the whole thing. 
Everybody knows that story, and they're going telling these, the disciples, hey, guess what? Remember that story of Sodom and Gomorrah and how awful they were and God destroyed them all? Well, whoever rejects your message is going to have it worse on the day of judgment than even they had. It's a stirring thought, really. I mean, really, if you think about it, it doesn't get much more worse than that. That's why he adds that in there. It's, a, it's important to have that context. I remember when I was in high school, when I was a senior in high school, I think the only classes I took as a senior in high school was gym and art. Why? Like, who cares? They don't care after a while. You know, it's like you just have a couple of math credits and they're like, whatever, you can do whatever you want. So I'm in art class, right? And uh, it was called commercial arts. What does that even mean? I don't know. It was weird. But we had this teacher, Mr. Washington, and he was a weird dude. He looked weird. He acted weird. Nobody liked Mr. Washington. I liked him. Let's see what's wrong with him. You know, he was reasonable, uh, you know, but, but I also did my work. I did everything he asked me to do. He'd make us paint these weird things. They'd have all sorts of... It's commercial art, right? So they'd have all these letters, like a pyramid of letters. I don't even know what what it meant. Nobody knew what it meant. It was weird. And then you'd paint some picture. So what? I did it. It was fun. I like painting. Why not, right? And so he would always be frustrated with the whole class. And they'd be working on something stupid like math or science in there. And he's like, you know... And so I remember, and I always remember it, he, uh, he had some wise words one time. He said, he would say, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it sit there and do its work. And if you hubba hubba and mumble mumble. <laughs> what? He'd do that all the time. I remember it all the time. But it's deep, right? Because basically what he's saying is that you could set the stage, you could do everything you possibly can for somebody, but if they're not going to put the work and the effort into it, needed to receive it, there's nothing else you can do. So the main point of these scriptures is force multiplication. Uh, force multiplication involves using tools and strategies to amplify and increase your output. Output. Totally hear it in leadership terms all the time. Uh, medicine uses it. The Boy Scouts, the military, the fire service. Um, this concept of force multiplication, using things to increase your benefit and your output to others. Similar to what Jesus is doing now, empowering the disciples to go out and multiply his efforts. Jesus needs to multiply the workforce, and because uh, the harvest is great, he empowers them, and he immediately puts them to work. He's got an action plan, he knows what he wants from them, uh, and he knows the mission he currently wants them to accomplish. It's the right mission at the right time. And you're familiar with the Great Commission at the end of the book, uh, where he says, go out into all the world, right? Well, not now. Now he's going to the Jews, and it's the right mission at the right time, because they're preparing away for him uh, and not trying to get ahead of his plans because when you're trying to do all these other things and get ahead of the plan and you're not working together you make the effort really hard so in terms of like rope rescue you know like people dangling off clips and cliffs and creating ropes to pull them back up again yeah i've done a little bit of that you know, a long time ago and so so this is how it works if you have two uh anchors opposite each other one straight rope 180 degrees and you pull weight in the middle of it you put the equal amount of force on either side so if you have 600 pound 600 pounds of weight pulling in the center of this rope you have 600 pounds of force pulling on both sides at the same time 
So basically doubling the workload. Now, if you take those sides and you take them uh, beneath a 45 degree angle where they're both kind of in a V, you know, pulling in the same direction, you actually cut that in half. Because think about it. You've got two equal forces pulling on this one thing. So basically they're only pulling 300 pounds a piece, right? They're pulling in the right direction. You're already reducing this, right? Now you take some more pulleys, some more anchors, and you connect them to the load and you collect them to the anchor. Then you have the rope running back to and fro. You can create mechanical advantage and actually create a one to three ratio or a one to five ratio. Basically, as many pieces that you have, you can just create better and better ratios, right? So if you have a one to five ratio, if you have mechanical advantage in your rope system with a one to five ratio, you just took that 600 pound load and made it 120 pounds of force to lift that 600 pound load, right? Now put three people on the rope. Now each person's pulling about 40 pounds of load, pulling it, but they're lifting 600 pounds of force. So when you look at the, the aligning behind the leader and you look at what Jesus is trying to do by getting them all going in the same direction, he's lightening the load on everybody. If they're all pulling in opposite directions thinking that they know what's best, they're just making it harder for everybody. It's not just one load they're pulling. It's almost like they're all pulling the same load with the same weight. They would be ineffective if they were trying to do that. They wouldn't be unified. What if they decided that, what if one decided, hey, I'm just going to go to the Gentiles because they're everywhere. So I'll just, why not? Why not everybody at once? What if they did that? Uh, What if they spent all their time trying to win over some stubborn hearted Jews who didn't want to listen? Jesus told them not to do that. He said, give them the message. If they don't want to listen, be done with it. We ain't got time to sit around and mess with people who should know better, but don't want it. Right? That's what he's basically saying. And so what if they said, ah, I mean, how much would it drag them down if one person got to the first town, one of the disciples get to the first town and gets dragged down by somebody who just won't listen. But Jesus loves them and he wants to draw them in. Yeah, I know. And he sent you to go talk to them and they don't want the message. There's other people who want it too. So you gotta listen to what Jesus is saying and balance that kind of stuff out. What if they said, oh, it wouldn't hurt just to pack one bag, like a carry-on maybe. Because that doesn't count, right? You don't have to pay for the carry-ons. You just have to pay for the check baggage. If they bring their stuff with them, they're not really relying on God. They're not relying on the fact that Jesus can sustain them. I'm not saying this is for you today. Pack a bag, man. Pay that 30 bucks. I don't care. But if Jesus calls you to a mission, you have to trust him that he knows what he's doing. That's the point. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no division among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment which is Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded towards one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may, with one mind and one mouth, glorify God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? That's being unified. Now, you have to apply this to your life. There's, there's very little point in you coming and listening to something if you just go out of here and forget it and don't apply something to your life. So if you do that by taking notes, great. If you do that by re-listening to the sermons online, great. 
But it's important that you take what you hear, reflect in the Bible, and make sure it's true, and go out and do something with your life that furthers the kingdom. The first thing you can do or understand about applying this to your life is God doesn't always call the equipped, but he always equips the called. What, what if they said, but I'm only a fisherman? Or, or I'm only a tax collector? I mean, I could imagine, actually, that... Being called as a disciple by Jesus, the Savior, uh, that you might feel a little bit inadequate if you weren't prepared. They're not teachers. They're not scholars. Maybe, I mean, imagine uh, what Matthew feels like being a tax collector. And now he's got to go to people and try to tell them that the kingdom has come and somehow they're going to believe him. That's a tough order. How about all those fishermen? They spend their life just getting blisters on their hands and working hard. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is like, no, stop fishing. And now you're going to go talk. Right? I mean, they might feel a little bit like, how am I qualified to do this? The disciples didn't have it all together, but they trusted the Lord that he would give them everything they need to fulfill their mission. He's going to give them what they need to fulfill their mission. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 27. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of this world to put to shame the things that are mighty. It shines God's glory so much more when you're operating in something that's not your strength. Because when you're successful at something that's not your strength, it shows that how are you doing this through Jesus Christ? Does it bother any of you that I don't have a college degree? Or that I didn't go to ministry school? Probably not, right? Because I'm preaching from the Bible. I mean, if it bothers you, then I don't know. I guess just shut your ears now because (laughs) that's the way it's going to be for a few weeks. So (laughs) settle in. But it doesn't bother me anymore. Second Peter chapter one, verse three, and his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and virtue. He's going to give you what you need to accomplish the mission that he's given you. Amen. And this is one of the reasons why I like Peter, right? Because Peter fails forward. He just does. So he feels like God's calling him to do something and he just goes and does it. And sometimes he's wrong. But that's okay. So sometimes we tease Peter like, oh, he's so, he's so foolish and he did all these wrong things. At least he did something. Because there's a reason why you don't know all the disciples' names. Because they didn't do something. That's what I like about Peter. He just goes out there and does it. And this is what I think about when God gives you something to do and you feel called according to his purpose. That he calls you out and you do it the best you can. And guess what? If you were wrong or you fail, he'll say, okay, I love your initiative. Maybe some bad judgment and we're going to redirect you and you're just going to keep trying because God works all things to good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So go do it. Go do something. It's a lot better than just sitting back and saying, oh, I don't really know and have analysis paralysis forever. Then nothing gets done. Then God's got to send somebody else to do the work. The second one is this. This is a thing you apply it to your life. Be a disciple who makes disciples. Because discipleship comes through relationships. And that means that relationships take time. Uh, I'm not, 
I'm not good at talking about anything important in 15 minutes before service or after service. I like to hover around like the weather or just like what we did this week because I just don't have time to get into anything deep. And if I did, if I was able to get into something deep in the 15 minutes, then we got to go to service or we got to leave or whatever. So building relationships and doing discipleship takes more than just Sundays. It takes more than you being here or staying after service. It takes meeting together during the week. It takes seeking somebody out and building a friendship and a relationship with them so that we can all grow in Christ because that's the goal. I mean, discipleship is one of the reasons why we don't do three services anymore. It was a lot of work, but honestly, it didn't, you know, we, it was funny to talk about how much work it was to do three services, but it really wasn't that bad. But what was bad is we decided that we were going to make room for more people to come in, but the only more people that came in is people who were concerned about having more room. And so then you go through trying times and people just, they're not there anymore. And so we're like, why are we making more room for people who just want to be shallow and don't want Jesus? Because the people who want to be here and hear the gospel and want to grow in Jesus aren't going to mind sitting shoulder to shoulder. So forget three services. We'll have two services till the day Jesus comes back. And if we have people standing in the back of the room, it's fine. And they'll think it's fine too. If it can happen in Pakistan, people can stand shoulder to shoulder in 120 degree weather. We can do it here, right? There's a new discipleship program that's coming out um, that we're rolling out soon. It's, a few people are testing it out right now. But it's a discipleship program that causes you to build more relationships and go deeper in Christ. Not grow bigger, grow deeper. And that's the direction we're headed. In these times, more than any times, we need to be solid and deep in our faith in Jesus Christ if we're going to endure. Now, being a disciple that makes disciples, here's a here's a way to look at it, okay? Um, now, this is something that uh, a, a lot of leaders and a lot of organizations use to teach people. It's learn it, do it, teach it. That's how you really settle in somebody and how to teach something. So it works like this. So the National Training Laboratory Institute um, says this about how we learn. So it says we only retain a portion of what we learn. So whatever you learn today, you're only going to retain a portion of it. So to learn it. So we only retain about 5% of what we learn in a lecture. So I spent 20 hours this week preparing the sermon, and you're going to remember 5% of it. So that's not an encouraging thing. But if there's a demonstration as a part of it, uh, you will remember 30%. So if I am teaching you about something and showing you how to do it, you'll remember more, like a third. Now, if I make you do it and practice it, you'll remember about 75%. So if I teach you how to do something, show you how to do something, and then make you do it, you remember a lot more of it. But now, teach it. So if somebody teaches you how to do something, and then show, and then makes you do it, and then immediately causes you to teach somebody else about it, then you'll remember about 90% of it. So that's why, that's what we do all the time. I could teach my driver something, he does it, I see that he's proficient at it, then I make him teach the rookie something. And then the rookie knows. And then we're all getting better at what we're doing. And so the other part about it is, is that if you don't practice it, you will forget it quickly. So you can learn these new skills and you can do these skills. But then if you haven't done it for a while, then you kind of forget. And you kind of lose all that emphasis that you put on it. So as we're talking about discipleship and we're talking about what you're learning today or wherever, you need to take this information and go and tell somebody else about it. Teach them about it. Tell them what you, tell them what you read in the Bible when you did your Bible study. Really solidify that thing. Or, better yet, tell them what you read about it, show them where it is, and then show them how to study the Bible so that they can gain those things too and tell somebody else, right? That's force multiplication. 
Jesus taught his disciples. He sent them out to teach others. It's exactly what he's doing by equipping other leaders and building them up. And that's what we do here too. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 and 12. It says, And he himself gave, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. That's how it works. You can't expect the pastors to be the ones that teach everybody everything. They're, we're equipping you to do the work of the ministry. You're supposed to take this stuff and go out and do ministry. You can't just expect somebody else to do it. Take some ownership over the situation and you do it. You learn to become a disciple and then you go teach somebody else to be a disciple. And the third thing we can draw from this is you have to be called and given a mission from the Lord. Start walking in your calling. It's not good enough just to do anything. Let God call you to it. And like I said before, if you picked wrong, he'll redirect you. It's the effort that's important here. Pray, seek God, read his word. Psalms 9 verse 10 says, And those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. you got to be a force for multiplication in your church and the kingdom uh, for our Lord and Savior. Amen? One more verse, and then we'll close. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead and the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Amen. Why don't you bow your heads? Now, I want to give you the opportunity to give your life to Jesus Christ this morning. Um, if you've never done that, um, you learned a little bit about Jesus today and how he works. And the reality is uh, it, you can't go, go to heaven without Jesus Christ. He's our redeemer. We're sinners who need a savior. And so uh, I'd be remiss if I let you come into the house of the Lord. and I didn't give you an opportunity to give your life to the Lord. So if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ before, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm going to ask you to come up for some prayer. Because like Billy Graham said, if you can't walk up into a room full of Christians and let them know you gave your life to Christ, then how are you going to survive out there in the world? So. Um, if that's you today and you've never given your life to Christ and you want to give it your life to Christ today for the very first time, you want to live for him and you want to get prayed for, just raise your hand at me. We can have you come up and get prayed for. All right. And the rest of us in here, my prayer is that we take this message, we walk out of here and we do something with it so that the Lord's labor is not in vain. And that we could spread his gospel to, to everyone who needs it. So let's pray. Lord God, we love you so much. We just give you glory and praise. Lord God, thank you uh, for speaking to your people, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, stay with us as we go. Uh, and we can always glorify you in your holy name, Lord. Amen. Hey, we want to thank you so much for being online with us today. I want to remind you, if you're not a follower on Facebook, please like our page on YouTube. Please subscribe. Follow us on Twitter. Tell all your friends. Continue to watch online. We thank you for watching. We love you so much. Have a great day.